you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now in the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worship the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Well, thank you for your welcome. It's a great delight to be with you today, though I did have a little trouble finding it because there's this sort of fog around. I don't know if you found that this morning. Anyway, I I finally got here. I want to talk to you about three marvelous miracles. Three marvelous miracles that occur in Nehemiah's chapters 8 to 10. The first one you heard about last week. God's people wanted to hear the Bible read and explained. Then, as we'll find today, God's people repented of their sins. And then God's people resolved to walk in God's words. There are good rhythms to develop in our Christian lives, good connections to make. Uh, Like the simple one which we should all learn, when somebody does something for you or gives you something, you say, thank you. That's what we teach children to do, and we try to do it ourselves. So there's a rhythm, a gift, and thank you. Here's a good rhythm for Christians. After you've read the Bible, turn your Bible reading into a prayer. When you turn your Bible reading into a prayer, you're then focusing on what you'll do in response to the Bible reading, aren't you? If you don't know what to pray after a Bible reading, you don't know what to do after a Bible reading. So learn to turn your Bible reading into a prayer. One thing that I'm doing, one rhythm I'm trying to learn at present, is to turn worries into prayers. You know, you can wander around worrying about lots of things. Well, I'm trying to discipline myself 
to turn every worry into a prayer and a prayer of trust in God. And I'm trying to learn my love for the world around me and my appreciation of trees and flowers and bark and gardens and skies and clouds and sunshine into praise of God, not just seeing something beautiful, but also turning that into praising the God who made all this wonderful beauty. These are some of the rhythms it's good to develop. And there's a rhythm found today, uh, which is the focus of our sermon. Uh, Hear the Bible, repent of your sins, and resolve to walk in God's ways. It's not the only rhythm. Reading the Bible might lead you to praise. Reading the Bible might lead you to trust. Reading the Bible might lead you to worship. Reading the Bible might renew your enthusiasm and passion for God and your love for people. Those are all good rhythms. But the rhythm we're looking at today is hear the Bible, repent of your sins, and resolve to walk in God's words. Well, the first miracle uh, you heard last week, I just want to rehearse it because this rhythm is so important. So when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And we discovered from Ezra chapter 7 that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules to Israel. That's a great, that's a great rhythm, isn't it? He studied it, he did it, and he taught it. That's what should happen in your Bible reading too, isn't it? You should study the Bible, then do what it says, and tell somebody else what you've discovered. That should be a normal pattern of your life. I love saying to people, oh, I read this great verse this morning, and this is what it is, and this is what I'm doing. And I'm hoping that if I do that, they'll do the same to me and encourage me with what they've just discovered from the Bible. So what a great rhythm that is in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. Ezra had set his heart, set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and teach his statutes and rules to Israel. Did you hear that? He set his heart. That is, he was determined to do this. It didn't happen accidentally. He set his heart to do it. Wonderful rhythm for us to learn and to follow. Back to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they'd heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence uh, of, of the men and women and all who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And uh, the Levites stood with him, of course. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people answered, Amen, lifting up their 
hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that people could understand the reading. You see, what the Bible does is remind us of reality. I read a book recently by a man called Daniel Bornstein who says that we are creating more and more unreal worlds for ourselves. Every work of fiction is an unreal world, isn't it? Every film is an unreal world. Isn't that right? Every escape that we devise for ourselves is an unreal world. Every photograph is an unreal world. We li we're living in illusions, actually. Somebody said to me recently, I always thought Queen Victoria was a very unpleasant woman. Then I saw the film, and I thought she's really quite sweet. How remarkable that uh, people see a film and then think they know the reality, the story which lies behind the film. See? Or it's like, uh, I love, the thing I love about television is, is, is car advertisements. They make me roar with laughter because they tell you absolutely nothing about the car except its name. No information at all. But they do tell you that if you buy this car, you will have freedom. And if you buy this car, you'll be driving long country roads with an attractive family, not squabbling. <laughs> in fact, if you buy this car, you'll be in a traffic jam on the Eastern Freeway, <laughs> along with all the other car people who bought this car to escape to an unreal world, you see. And we're so easily seduced, aren't we, by this unreality. But what the Bible does is to face us with real reality. There is one God, one creator, one maker, one ruler of this universe, one judge of all, one truth, one saviour, one mediator. And he defines reality for everybody, whether we like it or not. Nothing like a good dose of reality from the Bible to shape your life. And how wonderful that on this day, back uh, in the Old Testament, God's people wanted to hear the Bible read and explained. It reminds me of another, of another miraculous moment in the Old Testament, which I love reading about. When, the, when they were, Moses was trying to collect material to build the tabernacle back in Exodus. At one stage, people were being so generous, the treasurer had to get up and say, please stop giving. It is, I think, the only time in the history of the people of God when a treasurer has got up and said, please stop giving. Isn't that miraculous? Well, may that miracle occur to you very soon. God's people wanted to hear the Bible, the, the Bible read and explained. Then God's people repented of their sins. As we've just heard, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fast, fasting and in sackcloth with earth on their heads. They separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Then they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession 
and worshipped the Lord their God. Now, I want to talk to you about repentance. I was converted in my uh, last year in school, and the man who converted me uh, then met with me every Tuesday afternoon for three years to disciple me because I had no Christian background. I didn't know how to live as a Christian. So he met with me every Tuesday afternoon and we talked through uh, how to honour your parents, how to read the Bible, how to witness uh, to your friends, how to confess your sins, how to support missionaries, how to belong to a church, and so on and so on. So I was well drilled in confessing my sins. And the man who converted me uh, was a wonderful person because he had the highest standards for himself and for me, but the moment I had sinned, he was full of compassion and kindness and said, well, what we have to do is take, just take this to the cross of Jesus and you confess your sins and you'll be forgiven. But I want to talk about the ingredients of confession. This is a little guide on how to repent. They were repenting. I want to encourage you to repent every day. First, remember the holiness, justice, grace, and mercy of God in Christ. Remember that God is a holy God and a just God. And remember his grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. Then recognize and repent of the sin. You can't repent of a sin until you recognize it and say, well, I enjoyed doing this, but it was a sin. Or I felt embarrassed doing this, but saying it was a sin is to say it was a sin against God. And your relationship with God, after all, is the most important relationship in your life, isn't it? It's not, the important relationship is not how you view yourself or how others view you. It is your relationship with God. So it's not just to say, I let myself down, but I sinned before you. I sinned against you. So recognize and confess the sin. Then repent of the sin and of the pleasure and benefits that resulted from the sin. Because we can repent of a sin but still uh, enjoy the benefits from it. But we have to repent of the pleasure of the sin because that pleasure is a bad pleasure. The sin may have brought us comfort and happiness and joy and happy memories, but we, we must repent of those because what we thought was good was in fact bad. It was bad fruit from a bad tree. And then we have to receive the forgiveness and cleansing so freely given by God through Christ's death on the cross. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How wonderful. The smallest sin, the greatest sin, if we confess our sin, God forgives us and cleans us. And the one prayer that God will always answer immediately is, please forgive me. 
And the one prayer that God is never tired of hearing, however tired we are of praying it, is, I have sinned. Please forgive me. Then renounce the sin and resolve to do the opposite or the replacement. Do you remember uh, in Ephesians, Paul says to people who've been thieving, (laughs) stop thieving, but not just stop thieving, do the opposite. Work with your hands to give to those in need. Well, how wonderful. If you've been uh, a bitter person or slandering other people, then don't just think, I must not be bitter, I must not slander. Instead, spread love, spread affirmation, spread, spread generosity. Uh, if you have been uh, stealing, <laughs> well, stop stealing and start giving. If you've been tearing people down, stop tearing them down, start building them up. If you've been wasting your time with pornography, Start investing in real relationships. So it's so good to think, uh, well, I've been doing this with wrong. Now, what, what should replace this? And a good general rule is love God and love your neighbor. They're two good rules, aren't they? I resolve to love God and love my neighbor. Why? If we did that, we wouldn't have any time to sin, would we? If we all resolve to love God and love our neighbor. And then, if you need to, of course, restore the damage to the other person, if possible and appropriate. Repenting of sin is so important because, as we learn in Jeremiah chapter 17, our hearts are deceitful. Do you know, the moment you sin, you are blinded by that sin. The moment you sin and don't confess it, then you think, I've got away with it, and it's not very serious, so I can do it again the next time. So often our sins become habitual because we don't recognize them and choke them and kill them as quickly as we should. So our hearts are deceitful, and we learn in Hebrews chapter 3 that sin itself deceives us, it blinds us. And we learn from 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan deceives us. Well, if your heart is deceitful and your sin is deceitful and Satan is deceiving you, you need heaps of truth, gallons of reality. That's why we need to go to the Scriptures again and again to test our lives by the Word of God. But please notice too that what happens miraculously in Nehemiah is not actually individuals repenting, it is churches repenting. Now, churches need to repent because a shared sin in a church binds the church together. And if a whole church is committing the same sin, the whole church will be not able to recognize the sin. And sins that churches commit are so damaging to every member. Let's say the sin is prayerlessness. A prayerless church in which people don't do a lot of praying themselves. When they meet together, they'll talk but won't pray together. There's not much praying on Sunday. 
the really keen prayers are immensely discouraged because they want more prayer and no one wants to pray with them. I, in fact, I often say to, say to young ministers, if you want people to come along, offer food. If you want them to stay, offer prayer. It's interesting, isn't it? You see, in a prayerless church, then the young people grow up thinking that prayerlessness is the norm. And people who are converted come along to the church and think, well, prayerlessness is the norm. I'm not saying this is true of you. I'm just saying, just imagine a church which is prayerless or a church which is loveless or a church which is selfish. And what happens is that everybody affirms that corporate sin. I don't mean corporate as in big business, but corporate as in the sin of the body, the sin of the church. And no one challenges it. The sins of churches are immensely serious and immensely distressing because everybody in the church is affected by the sin. And if the pastor tries to correct it, <laughs> he'll be sacked. Because people don't mind ministers and preachers talking about personal sins, but they hate when ministers talk about the sins of the church. Because the sin, in this case, is one of the bits of glue that binds the community together. It's a shared value. Well, it's not a shared value. It's a shared vice, as a matter of fact. You may think, but this diminishes personal responsibility. Not at all. Imagine you're reading 1 John. Love one another. Well, if you just think about that individually, you think, well, I'm loving my neighbours, that's enough. But actually, if you hear that and think, this whole church, we all need to be loving each other, then you can't rest, you can't stop until you've, been, you've prayed and prayed and prayed and exhorted your fellow, your fellow believers, we all ought to be loving one another. And you've begged your preacher, your minister, to preach more about loving one another. And you've urged your uh, elders or deacons or church council to, to set an example of mutual love. Do you see the point? He, think of, thinking about a corporate sin actually increases every member's responsibility. So if you think this is a loveless church, I'm sure it isn't. But you should be praying fervently and exhorting others to love each other and setting, of course, an example of that love and showing what that love is like. That's a costly thing to do, isn't it? But it was costly corporate repentance there back in Nehemiah chapter 9. They were deadly serious about confessing their sins. Indeed, if you read the whole of Nehemiah 9, you'll see what it is to confess sin as a body of people. If you want another example, uh, read Daniel chapter 9, a wonderful prayer of confession for the sins of the nation. That is, the church of God, the people of God in Daniel's day. And of course, the thing which hinders the life of a church most of all is not lack of resources or lack of money, but sin. It's sin which damages churches most of all, as it's sin which damages us most of all. Not lack of time or lack of money or lack of resources or lack of energy, 
It's actually sin which damages us most of all because it damages our relationship with God. It drags us to an unreal world of our own foul imagination rather than living before the holy and pure God knowing his love and his gracious and generous forgiveness and knowing the transforming work of his spirit. I mentor a few people in ministry and after I've been mentoring them about six months, I say, what sins are you confessing at present? They then turn white. <laughs> I say, I don't want to know what they are. I want, you, I want to know that you are confessing some sins at present. If you're not, you're failing the Lord's Prayer, aren't you? Forgive us our sins. It's a basic Christian prayer, isn't it? I hope you're praying it every night. And I hope you as a church find an opportunity to repent, not just of your own personal sins, but the sins of the people of God. Should churches repent? Listen to Jesus in uh, Revelation 2. I know your works, he says to the church at Ephesus. Your toil, your patient endurance. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. But I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. He's calling on a church to repent, isn't he? Or the church in Laodicea. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you're either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, Jesus says, and repent. Here's a rhythm. Read the Bible, repent, and resolve. From Nehemiah, at the end of Nehemiah chapter 9, and some verses from chapter 10. They've been confessing their sins for a whole chapter. Here's the re resolution. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, Levites, and priests. And then there's a list of people, uh, Nehemiah the governor, the son of Halakiah, and Zedekiah, and so on. But then all the people are, are making the same covenant. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who'd separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. Wow, what's that? They're saying, may we be cursed if we don't do this. And their oath is, we promise to do this. 
Very solemn, isn't it? May we be cursed if we don't do this, but we will do this. That's what a curse and loath is. To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for their sons. That is, we'll be pure and faithful to one God. If the peoples of the land bring goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we won't buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. And we'll forego the crops on the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. That is, trusting God's provision. The Sabbath was a reminder to be holy and to trust God completely as the generous provider. That's why you rested from your labor. So trusting God's purity, God's provision. And then in verse 38, we will not neglect the house of our God. The house of God was, of course, the temple, the God's house in God's holy city, where God was present among his people. So they were honoring God's presence among them. So let me ask you, are you used to repenting of your sins? And are you used to resolving before God to change the way you live? John Wesley, the great evangelist, wrote a covenant prayer which Methodists, I think, used to use on, uh, at the, on the first day of each year. Here it is. Here's Wesley's covenant prayer. I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine and I am Thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Well, I found a great prayer in a book of Puritan prayers. May my last day be my best day. You know, people often live the Christian life a bit like an aeroplane. Aeroplanes, do you remember aeroplanes? We used to fly in them once before COVID. That's right. They've shrunk. I've been in an aeroplane. They've shrunk. Uh, I think they've been washing them too much. They're much smaller than they used to be. Anyway, you'll remember what aeroplanes do is put a lot of energy into getting off the ground, okay? <clears throat> and then they kind of coast, don't they? And you can hear the kind of quietness of the engine just ticking over and then you hope they land safely at the other end. Well, some people live the Christian life that way. Lots of energy into getting going in the Christian life, say 10 years, 15 years. Then they think, well, I know how to live as a Christian, so I can coast from now on. But of course, when you're coasting in any relationship, in marriage, in family life, in your work, whatever you're doing, if you start coasting, in sport, if you just start coasting, you start going down, don't you? If your marriage is not getting better, it's getting worse. Isn't that right? 
If you're not getting better at your job, you're losing, you're losing your skills. If you're not getting better at playing cricket or getting more fit, uh, then you'll, you'll be losing your tone, won't you? So what God calls us to do, you see, is not a lot of energy to get going and then coast from then on, but actually to keep on growing, keep on repenting, keep on being transformed by God's gracious spirit right to the end. I say to my friends whose bodies are collapsing, I quote them the verse from uh, 2 Corinthians, that our outer nature is wasting away, but our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And your inner nature will, being, will be renewed day by day. You'll be transformed into the likeness of Christ by the work of God's Spirit. If repentance and resolve are part of your daily life, and that will happen if you read the Bible. Three miracles for your lives individually and three miracles for this church. Hear the word of God. Repent of your sins and resolve to live more and more devoted to the God you know and love and the God who saved you in his mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for your constant care of us every day. We thank you for your daily provision of all we need to live. We thank you for air to breathe. We thank you that you keep our hearts pumping away. Uh, we thank you that you keep our minds functioning, that our bodies still work. We thank you for fresh water to drink. We thank you for clothes to wear. We thank you for people to love. And we thank you for work to do and life to enjoy. But we thank you too for the scriptures which show us not only how to live but how we have failed to live. Please make us quick to repent, not reluctant to repent. Quick to run back to you uh, and not continue walking away from you. Please do this for us as individuals and also for us as a church. And when we repent, please help us to resolve to lead a new life, following your ways, walking in the steps of the Lord Jesus, and led and inspired and guided and directed by your Holy Spirit. So please, in your mercy, keep renewing us in your kindness and love transforming us into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from one degree of glory to another. Dear Father, please continue this gracious work in us, we pray, that we might live for your praise and honour. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.